0: We're in the the epistle of James, and really this is a sermon that I'm going to share this morning that I had meant to share the first week that we started our study in the book of James. I had planned to go all the way through verse 12 in a sermon that I titled, The Playbook for Trials. And what I have found in my studying and really meditating on the book of James, that it's, it's almost like a rich dessert that comes in a very small bowl, and yet it takes so long to get through it, because every bite has to be savored and, and, and really uh, weighted on. So as much as I thought we could get through the first 12 verses in our first week, I now realize that I had prepared three separate sermons. So this is the third part of the first sermon that I had written. And so I'll I'll share with you um, by way of really a recap of where we've been, what that sermon was, and then it will really give you the the theme of our morning. What I loved about the book of James as I started to, to really study it and pray through it for our time in the Word as a church is that it seems to speak in such real time to the world that we're living in. Because James starts his letter by saying to the churches who are scattered abroad, which means it sets out the gate. The context is challenge and difficulty. Uh, remember, the church was scattered because of the persecution that Early Christians, early followers of Christ, went through. And, and we see in the picture of the, the stoning of Stephen that the church scattered from Jerusalem and started being displanted all around different regions uh, and all the way to uh, Asia Minor. And so James is going to write to them to, to encourage them and say, This is a challenge. It's hard to go through persecution, it's hard to be uprooted and planted somewhere else. But In the challenges of their lives, and now in the challenges of our lives, there is joy in the trial. And so, wow, grateful to receive that because the last few months have been kind of a a trial on a global scale, which typically trickles down into trials in your life. And, And by the way, this is not a unique time that we live in. You're either going through a trial or you just got out of one and you're about to get one because that's the nature of the life that we live in. So I appreciate James teaching us how to navigate the challenges of life. And so the playbook or the strategy for trial starts with a perspective of joy. Meaning, when, when we are so rooted in the love of God of our life, in the sovereignty of God in our life, and the picture of God's goodness that takes us through the glory to glory to glory to salvation into heaven, we can have joy because it's not rooted in the things of this world. But as last week we looked at, it's not, always to see the, it's not always easy to see the joy. You don't wake up out of bed in the middle of a trial or in the middle of a, the darkness of our world and say, I can't wait for the joy that is going to unfold through all of the frustrating things. And that's why James goes on to say, if you lack wisdom, if you're not seeing the joy, if you're not experiencing it yet, that's okay. You need God to give you his wisdom so that you do see it. So the second aspect of the strategy is to go from the perspective of joy to the position of prayer. Oftentimes trials in our life are meant to bring us to the presence of God where there is the fullness of joy. And that begins through a lack of wisdom where we say, God, I don't know, but you do. And now the relationship with God is being enriched by the trial. So you have a perspective of joy turning into the position of prayer. And now we get to verse 12 of the the strategy that James has given to these believers and us that says, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. He made it through the trial. He made it through the temptations to give up and not persevere. He made it through the temptation to be double-minded, to trust God when it's good, but look to your own strategy when it's hard. As you persevere and continue to trust God, he says, when you've been approved, you will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has. Has promised to those who loved him. So the final aspect of this as we do a really a three-part series in joy in trials is to have the promise of eternity in our minds. And that is the only way that you can make sense of the temporary, although very painful at times, circumstances of your life, is to have a view of eternity. And that is going to be given to us by James in a teaching that will mirror the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the best ways for eternity to invade your life is to challenge the positions that you hold on earth. One of the best ways to hold onto your position of eternity is to allow your positions on earth to be shaken. And that's exactly what James is going to give us as he walks us now with actual wisdom for the trial that has to do with the positions that so often challenging times will shake in your life. And that's where we'll start this morning. He says this in verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Glory here is a a way for for James to encourage the readers to take joy or to, to really be encouraged by Exaltation, a word that means to be lifted up. So as a trial has pushed someone down, as you are a lowly brother of low stature, James is saying, if you're low, glory or enjoy the way that God brings you up. And then he says, but the rich in his humiliation. He says, if you're, if you're poor, if you're lowly, the trial is going to teach you something by the wisdom of God that he will lift you out of the pit. And if you're rich... Remember, the position of heaven invades the position of earth. If you're rich, glory and humiliation. You see why this is going to take us some time to get through the book of James? Because this is going to take us meditation and a pace by which we can actually consume this and not just read through it. James is saying, if you're low, be grateful that you're high. And if you're high, be grateful that you're low. So we'll discuss the paradox of that today. And then he says, by way of illustration, Keep your mind on the temporary versus the eternal. Verse 10. Because as a flower of the field, the rich man will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, it flowers fall, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in all of his pursuits. In other words... No matter your economic status, no matter how low you are or how high you are on this side of eternity, it is all fading away. Easy to preach, hard to practice, but very important when you think about the strategy for your trial, what timeline do you live in? Are you living in an eternal perspective for how you can navigate the circumstances of your life? And if you aren't, James, appealing to nature, much like Jesus did, says, consider the lily look at the flower. Consider the the book of creation that lives all around you to teach you about the brevity of your life. The flower comes up and it is so beautiful until the sun hits it. And then the petals fall to the ground and it's thrown away. I get a reminder of this every month because my wife always brings in fresh flowers at the beginning of the month, which I love until about two weeks in. (laughs) And then they start to wither, and the beauty turns into something that is actually kind of annoying, because it gets messy, and and, and it starts to smell, and you got to change it out, and then she throws it away and gets new ones. And every time that happens, it's a reminder that such it is with all the positions of my life the ones that sprout up and they have beauty, it is only a matter of time before the sun of this creation will shine down on my life and my looks and my money and my position will fade away. And with this grasp or this illustration, James says, so live for the crown of the eternal life in God that you have. And the best way for us to allow that to invade our hearts is to present our positions of economic status before God. So that's just a common theme throughout the Bible, is that he uses the the money that sometimes defines our identity as a way to contrast earth with heaven. And as much as we wish it wasn't true, your wealth often defines your identity. You show me your neighborhood and your closet, and your car, and I can tell you a little bit about your paycheck, for better or for worse. And so with that in mind, James is going to speak to the poor, and something that God is doing on this side of eternity to lift them up, and to the rich on this side of eternity to teach them the lowly state. And so we're going to learn about that today as a way for us to cling to the actual promise what is it in your life that is a non-negotiable promise that will get you through any storm because it has a timeline that will last, outlast any trial? And so welcome to church this morning. We're going to talk about money. Sorry if you bought a friend. <laughs> Actually, I'm not because this is a good news message. It's a gospel message. And to look at this as you study the Bible, but specifically in studying the book of James, I, I find there are three helpful lens to filter the positions of earth through whether you're poor or rich, and as you listen to this, you're probably thinking about your own condition. The first lens is the historical lens. What is James speaking into for the context of the people he's actually writing to? So we look at the historical lens, and then we are going to look at the cultural lens. What is James saying to us, to these people, for now? And then, most importantly, so I hope I save it the most time for this, which is always challenging when it's at the end, is the personal lens. What is James not only saying to our cultural experience with God and church, Christianity, but what is he saying to me? What is he saying to you? So historical, cultural, and personal as a way for us to cling to the eternal. First we get the historical version of this and we find it in the book of James you also find it in any honest reading of most expressions of history there are typically up until very recently in human history there are typically two classes of people there are typically the poor and the rich The middle area called the middle class that we often enjoy with the comforts of kind of a foot in both is really a new human experience that we can talk about for our cultural experience. But for James' time of writing, he was specifically writing to believers that were scattered. They were uprooted and brought into new areas. And so he has a lot to say to the poor people that he is writing to. Most people were either in a class of servant or master, slave, or owner, rich, or poor, and he's gonna say to the poor, to glory in their exaltation. This is a radical comment that is sometimes lost on us because we are, culturally speaking, not able to relate to the poor in in ways that James would, would easily be able to write to the people of his day. He's saying to them, regardless of your economic status, as you've been scattered abroad and you find yourself looking for jobs to just make it in this new area of of the world, he says, as you go through that trial, glory in something. Glory in exaltation. What James is saying is, you don't necessarily have to have master status on earth to glory in the riches that God will give you now. This is a radical view. We get a little... Hint at how radical that would have been to the audience who heard it—that the poor in Christ, those who have earthly poverty, are actually lifted up to the heavenly riches—as gospel, good news message—and radical to the listener. When you get a uh, when you get the story of the rich young ruler, remember that story in Mark chapter nine. There was a man who had the question of eternity on his heart. What must I do to inherit? eternal life. The question of the hour. How do I, in the midst of trials and difficulties and the ups and downs of life, hold on to something that will outlive all of it? And what does Jesus say? He says, sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and follow me. Not a absolute remedy for all riches, but for this man, he says, will you allow eternity to radically alter the position of earth that you have? And of course, It's an important story to study because the man gives a proper response, as most of us would, as we're challenged to give up our portfolio goods and our earthly wealth. It says the man walked away sorrowful because he had a lot of riches. He had a lot of stuff. He was rich. He was young. He was a ruler. Jesus says, forget all that, and then you can really cling to eternity. He walked away sorrowful, to which Jesus says how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible. Difficult. The disciples hear that and say, if he can't be saved, who can be? If material wealth and blessing and riches and strategy for life that turns into abundance of life now doesn't give you some sort of preview for the favor of God in your life, then what would? It's confusing to hear that riches on earth have nothing to do with riches in heaven. Jesus says, it's actually impossible for man, but it's possible for with God. Salvation is no respecter of economic status. God exalts the poor and he exalts the rich to heavenly places that make all earthly wealth seem like nothing in comparison. And before we go further, it's important for us to grasp this historical message because it's often mispreached. Oftentimes you'll hear Let the poor glory in exaltation as a way to say, you come to church poor, but by faith you will leave church rich. You give to the tithe basket and the Lord will give you even more. That is not what James is saying. James does not say, pray for wisdom so that if you're poor, you would have a blueprint for some business model that would help you find earthly riches. He's saying, pray for wisdom so that even in your poverty, you would realize you're already rich. You would understand that regardless of what is happening on this side of eternity, what God has waiting for you is so worth whatever you give up. There's a theologian who says that this, I shouldn't say theologian, it's a musical artist named Bob Marley, (laughs) but I find it helpful. He says, don't gain the world and lose your soul. Wisdom is better than silver or gold. This is just a surface reading of the book of Proverbs, by the way. James says, seek wisdom in trial. And as you seek wisdom, you're reminded that the the, the wisdom book of the Bible is always contrasting the value of wisdom against gold says, get wisdom. It's worth more than precious gold. Yes, even rubies. What we're not asking God for is to throw money at all our problems. What we're asking God for is to give us wisdom despite of our status so that we could cling to the promise regardless of how the problems are worked out here. So the historical view is very important because God does exalt the poor into spiritual riches. That's why the Apostle Paul and James could be co-pastoring this moment, Uh, Paul will appeal to who God calls. He says in the book of Corinthians, as they were dealing with their own version of status in the church, he says, "'If you see your calling, brethren, "'not many wise according to the flesh, "'not many mighty, not many noble noble are called, "'but God has chosen the foolish things of the world "'to put to shame the wise.'" And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and base of the world, to put to shame those things which are despised by God and chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing, so that the things that are, so that no flesh should glory in his presence. It is the wisdom of God that he calls us out of our spiritual poverty into the riches of heaven. Why? So that there is no boasting. There is no extra money. There is no dime. There is no economic status. There is no blessed neighborhood or community or brand of clothing that gets you closer to God. He calls the weak so that no one would glory in anything but the free gift of salvation. Do not despise poverty of earth, be exalted into the riches of heaven. That's the historical uh, overlay that we can look at this through. But now we look at cultural because culturally speaking, we are a rich brother. We are the rich brethren, in fact. We have maybe the most unique of all blessings of all time. In the world that we live in, I don't think we understand how much comfort and blessing we have been given just by our birthright on, on the, in the country that God has given us. And so some of you are listening and say, well, you don't know my bank account. You haven't seen my closet or my neighborhood. You're rich. In the view of the history of man, in the view of the current state of the world, what we are experiencing in the resources of this building, in the instruments on this stage, in the cars in the parking lot, in the freedom to do what we do, gives us so much privilege from God. Listen to one way to understand this comment from the world bank on poverty real poverty according to the world bank is a yearly income of six hundred dollars see central africa or most of human history in everyday terms absolute poverty is to live with less than two dollars per day america simply doesn't have any of this it just doesn't exist and it really hasn't For at least a century, and even then it was rare. By no means do I want any of your needs for provision to be diminished. Uh, You have real hurts and pains, economically speaking. But in the scope of the culture that I'm preaching into, we are a blessed people. When you think about the history of the world that has unfolded up until this point. We actually had a visitor to our church last week, and I have a feeling we have some today too. That's just the current... Uh, state of things and uh, they came from another part of the world and they walked in and I was just greeting them and as I was talking to them they just looked around and said I have never seen a church this nice and I was thinking really (laughs) because when we look around we just think all the stuff we want to do to make it nicer it's Make it better. Make it, you know, more polished. And make it, you know, you got to keep up with the Joneses of the American church. Am I right? But it was sobering. Because it makes you think to all of those gatherings that are happening, some underground, some only in homes, some outside, some in tiny little places, and, and all of the things that people do to worship the Lord in exaltation. We come here, and our need is to worship through humiliation. We are so blessed that sometimes we depend on everything but God. And so the challenge for us is to accept the call of something we really don't like. We accept the call of humility. I was, a couple of ago, I was walking downtown and I found myself walking into the uh, area where a number of homeless people hang out and I was talking to some homeless guys, and I found myself kind of looking through the trash because it was, uh, I don't know, it was just available. And inside this trash can, I found loads of really nice and warm boots. And so I started getting them out and pulling them out of the trash, and maybe I looked homeless myself. But I pulled out a couple pairs. I was like, hey, everybody, there's a bunch of boots in here. And one of the guys came up to me and said, it's January. It's January. January is when we get our surplus of everything. I mean, we have everything that we need, so much so that we have to throw some things away. Now, this is not to say don't give to the poor. This is to say, let us not think that we're called to eradicate the classes that God has placed into our world. Jesus says, the poor you'll have with you always. Thank God that we live in a city that has an abundance to give so that even the least of these has an abundance. That's a beautiful blessing, but it's also a reminder of who we are. In our stuff, the echoing of the Sermon on the Mount rings true here. Remember what Jesus said about riches. He said, don't store up yourself riches, where moth and rust will eat away and thieves will run in. And to the church audience, you're like, yes and amen. And yet, if you found someone who wasn't numb to that verse and actually took it into their life, they'd think, that is the most anti-American thing I've ever heard. All Americans do is store up stuff. That's what we live for. We want more of everything. The car garage always gets bigger. The the closet always needs expanding. The thrift store always needs a donation. I was talking to my neighbor the other day. And my neighbor's been on my street for longer than I've been alive. So he's got a really good history on it. And I said, you know, I think we've outgrown our house. It's only 1,400 some square feet. I got four kids. They're, They're sleeping on bunk beds and stacked on each other. And He said, you think so? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, 30, 40 years ago, this neighborhood had nothing but families bigger than yours. And I thought, oh, okay. So maybe I don't have too many kids. I just have too much stuff. Maybe we outgrow our houses, not because we just continually have to gain and gain more things, but maybe we're actually being called to have less. You ever driven down around our city and just counted all the storage units we have? (laughs) Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. And you're listening to the sermon on the way to your storage unit. (laughs) Who are we? The, The Lord has a way to tell everything through story and one of the reoccurring themes of his story was the rich man. A man who had much wealth, a man who had an estate, a man who was ruling over, uh, over property and servants, and a man that he literally calls a rich man. Remember in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, be careful of all sorts of greed. Your life consists more of the, than the abundance of things you own. And then he tells this story. And I can't help but think of the rich man being some version of a man just living the American dream. He's got a guy that's going through a bumper crop. He's had years of plenty, and he's got so much stuff. He's got so much grain that he doesn't know what to do with it. So rather than give out the extra, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down what I have, and I'll build up even more. Sound familiar? The constant expansion. And so he fills up these new storage units, and he's got all the grain. He's got enough food to last him years. Early retirement, he sits back to enjoy his life, and the Lord says this is a lesson on wisdom because that man was a fool. On this night, your soul will be required of you. And who gets all this stuff? Your flower withered away. Your riches are gone, and now you stand before the Lord of eternity with what to present? And so, culturally speaking, James is saying, love, glory, find, humiliation. In the same way that we have to make sure we're not preaching to poor people that there's a way for wisdom to make them rich, in the same way, James is not saying to those of us who have an abundance of things that we have to become poor. What he's saying is, hold so loosely to anything on this side of earth that you can cling to eternity. And for one of the challenges of the modern day church, the thing that we cling to is not eternity, but the stuff. Look what Paul says to Timothy as he's just giving him wisdom for leadership. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be proud, not to go around in their identity of riches as a way to find some esteem in themselves, nor to trust in any, in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. Riches are not inherently evil. It is a question. It is a, is a measurement of how much eternity has invaded the position of earth. And Paul says to Timothy, just make sure that they're trusting in the living God and not trusting in riches. He goes on to say, let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. You want trials to somehow be soaked with wisdom? You better be able to look at them through the lens of eternity. Because if you zoom in too close, all you're going to see is bank statements and the ups and downs of your economic status on this side of earth, and you will have no joy. And yet, when you hold things loosely enough to worship God, you have the view of eternity written on your heart, and it comes out of you in a way that creates some surprising joy that you can't experience otherwise. Now, this is easy to preach. Rich people, people with money in your bank account, people with storage units and stuff. Use them for the glory of God. Take care of people, bless people, enjoy what he's given you, enjoy the resources of church. Sing the songs that we get to sing with a band behind us. Do all the fun ministry stuff that we get to do. Worship God in all of it. Easy to preach, hard to practice. So what happens, because God loves us so much, is those things that are easy to preach, or listened to in a sermon, but hard to practice, is that he allows certain things in our life to come to break up the hard ground of our heart, to to unclench the fists that we have for the things that we think define us apart from eternity. And this is how trials can actually be something that we glory in or we enjoy, because a trial, because God loves you, listen, God loves you, because he loves you, he does not want you to be exalted above measure. That's something we're actually going to look at in the example of the Apostle Paul as we now pivot this to the lens of the personal. So far we've preached kind of a, a history of poor people and God's care for them, rich honoring that process by fellowship and dwelling with them and not exploiting them, and then to the culture that we live in, the church age that we live in. Let us not only look for exaltation, but running to ways for God to humble us. And now, what does that mean for you? Where are you at personally in your spirit with this message? Here is the message for me. Here is the message for all of us. You are called to both. Throughout the glory to glory to glory journey of your life upward to heaven, you are going to have two directions to your worship at all times. Sometimes in the very moment, they'll come together. But all of us are either glorying up as God lifts us out of a pit, or we're glorying down as he keeps us from an earthly position that would would destroy our heart. The personal application of this is to somehow, through the meditation and the, the word coming alive in our heart, both be humbled by God and exalted by God in everything that we do. Jesus actually begins the foundation by which he says is the wise builder's key to success throughout all the storms of life. In the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're poor, you are humbled. And when you are humbled, you will be exalted into the authority of the kingdom of heaven. You are called to both. The example of the the Apostle Paul is that he was someone who stood apart from Christ on the foundation of amazing religious work wealthy in his knowledge of scripture, wealthy in his application through ministry. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrew. He had the right bloodline, the right uh, identity in his community. He had the best teacher. He sat under the feet of the best rabbi. He was wealthy in his knowledge. And he was wealthy in his his ministry. He said, as far as zeal, I was persecuting the church. And for him, that was very religious because the church was blaspheming. You you, you can't just rely on grace. You got to work. And yet, as he encounters the God of eternity, the living Christ who conquered the temporal death, look what he says. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I'll give it all away. Culturally rich church. Culturally fat, religious righteousness with All the best teaching, all the best resources of the Bible, all the freedom to worship God, all the community success and the identity, you've got the clothes, the closet, the community, would you give it all away for the eternal presence of God? That's the example of the Apostle Paul. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash that I may gain Christ. This is the call of salvation, by the way. It's appropriate that we have a baptism today because that gives us the picture of the initial call, which is death, to give it all away. Whoever tries to save his life will, in fact, lose it. And when you get baptized, you go into the water first. You have to go in to represent the death before you come out that represents the resurrection. And yet it's been said of the American church that we baptize with our Hands holding our wallet out of the water. It's like, take everything but what I cherish most, Lord. You can take my life, but just give me my car and my community, and I will keep my job and never send me to Africa. And then I'll serve you in everything that I do. You are called to give everything to God. And in that, James says, glory in humility. Glory in the way that he brings you under the water. He brings you to death. He calls you to the cross. Do we glory in humiliation? Uh, One hint to the answer is that we don't even like the word. (laughs) When I read humiliation, I, in my notes, changed it to humility because I was like, not humiliation. (laughs) Nobody likes that. Do we glory in the call of God to, in all of the earthly statuses, to come low to receive grace? There is great humility that we uncover in in the word calling us to God. It, It takes great humility to confess our need, doesn't it? I was talking to my wife. She called me while I was studying. That's what happened. She called me, and, and she, I answered the phone, and she says, is there something you need to tell me? And I was like, Oh. not that I can think of. <laughs> she goes, did you do something really bad? And I was like, oh, man, I hope not. <laughs> it caused this uncomfortable feeling in my heart. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't want to admit to anything bad. I don't want her to know all the thoughts and ideas and... All the, 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 the waywardness of my soul. So I'm like, what are you thinking? <laughs> and she goes, did you open up that bag of candy that I bought for Halloween? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness, yes, I did that. No big deal on that. Yeah, that was, yeah, I'm a bad guy for that one. <laughs> and I hung up the phone, and I was like, phew, that was easy. I thought she was going to really find something out about me. And then I get back to the word. And I'm like, all right, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Glory and humility. <laughs> I don't want to glory in humility. I want you guys to think that I stand on a stage and that I, I'm like good with God and always you know, worshiping in my private time. And yet, in humility, by getting low with the Lord, we, we, are, we are supposed to glory in it because now it's teaching me about my actual position. My position is not this stage in God's economy. My position is not the lead pastor, the the guy who teaches the Bible. My position is to be so low that I receive everything from God. And whatever I didn't receive from God without faith is sin. I don't like hearing that. I was actually with Reggie and the whole crew that came to to Reggie's Cultivate Weekend, which was so awesome. And Mike Hughes from Calvary Chapel Emmett came and he opened the word and says, turn to James chapter one. We're gonna talk about uh, anyone who lacks wisdom. I was like, I already got this. I can just sit back because I'm already teaching this. And he says, all right. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all liberally, but let him ask in faith. And then he says, what do you need to get wisdom from God? What's the first thing you need? And I was like, faith. And he's like, "Uh, what's before that? And I was like, it's not faith. I just thought this. I don't know. He says, you need lack. You need to admit that you don't have. And that is the one thing that we as a culture and us personally hate to admit. Lord, I actually need you. I need your wisdom. I need your provision. I need you to to give me anything good that I have. And all of these competing things that I I get dependent on are bad. So take me low, Lord. Anything that causes me to trust in something other than you, take me so low so that I go under your hand of grace once again. Ernest Updike, another Calvary pastor, but in Garden Valley, he has a quote that I cling to and I share it with you because it's not easy. But he says, if you ever have an opportunity to be humbled by God, run to it. Do we run to humility? Do we run to the confession of sin? Do we run to the the receiving of exhortation? Do we run to to the word because we lack wisdom? Let the rich glory in the way that we need him in our poverty of spirit. And, and that message seemed to me in, in first read of this to really be the message for us. And yet what I also realized, and the reason that personally we have to be both, is that as much as it seems odd to our, our flesh to love humility because we want to present ourselves as strong, it's also odd sometimes how I also reject exaltation. Sometimes in my life, although it makes sense to to think that this would be something I always receive, but when God wants to pull me up, sometimes I don't want that either. Sometimes I don't glory in the way that God wants to bring me high. The psalmist says, I was in a pit, and you put my feet on solid ground, and then you put a new song in my heart that anyone who heard would trust in you, which means that when God is exalting you, he's also calling you to be his vessel. He's exalting you with spiritual gifts. He's exalting you with a purpose to your life. He's exalting you with a position now in the kingdom for his glory. And sometimes in our poverty of spirit, we say yes to salvation, but no to anything else. Do we glory in the way that God calls us up? The way he brings us to the position where he can now use us? Here's a call on your life. If you've put your faith in God, it says in Peter, in 2 Peter, that we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood is what he calls us. He calls the church something that he was doing in Israel to to give them the oracles of God and the ministry. And he says he calls us When we were far off, we did not have mercy, and now we do. This is the position of your life in the call of God. He calls you from sin to righteousness. He calls you from afar off to the kingdom so that he can use you like a priest and a king. And yet, as James says, so often we're double-minded. Save me from my trial so that I can get back to what I was doing. Do you glory in the exaltation of God? And here's maybe the riddle solved for us. Sometimes we probably reject humility because we don't realize that they are one in the same. Humility is always exalted in the kingdom of God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And a picture of this for us to understand is again, a story of Jesus. He gives a story of a a rich man giving a feast. He says, when you give a feast, or when you go to a feast, don't go to the best seat. Just a practical nugget of wisdom there, because what happens, according to Jesus, is if you sit at the best seat, if you sit at the exalted spot of the table, what might happen is someone who's more deserving than you comes in, and then they have to say, can I actually see your ticket? Because I don't think you're supposed to be here. And then you're like, I don't have a ticket. I, I'm, I'm going to go now. And then you walk to the low seat, and everyone looks and says, Imposter. That guy was never supposed to be there. So Jesus says, rather take the low seat. Rather be humble in your approach to God. Rather be poor in spirit and open-handed. And what happens then? From the low seat, he says, then the master will see you and bring you up to the place of exaltation. And when that happens, your life becomes to the glory of the, of the, the Lord. When people see you go from low to high, when people see you going from a place of great poverty to a place in the position of the kingdom, God is glorified in the way that he has cared for your life. And so somehow I desire both to be true of your life, my church, or my my life, our church. Just think about all the different positions. If, If humility and exaltation, I was sharing this with my wife as I prepared. And I said, Lord, uh, I said, Daniela, I just, I just, humility. I just want humility so that I could know the grace of God. But I also want to say yes to the way that the Lord's picking me up so that he can use me. She says, humility and exaltation. She goes, hey, that's H and E. That spells he. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. Thank you, Daniela. So there's this sticker that I see around town. And I happen to see it after she said that. It says, he is greater than I. Maybe you've seen that, and if you haven't, just remember this. It's this concept that God is greater than you. And how do you get to he? Humility and exaltation. You do both in your life. You do, husbands, do both in your marriage. Serve your wife in humility, and the Lord will bless your marriage and exalt it. Parents, you do this with your kids. You, with humility, you care for them. You open the word and you teach them. You, 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 you spend time with them and teach them the way they should go in humility. And the Lord will exalt them to the honor of their parents. Pastors, do this at church. It's like in humility you serve and somehow he'll use your feeble words to bless people. They'll be exalted. The believer who practices both humility and exaltation has to have an eye on eternity. So how do you get that? Well, we end with this. I said a couple weeks ago, if, if preaching isn't Christ-centered, throw it away. If the word of God isn't pointing you to a love of Jesus, then keep reading. Jesus is the answer to this. Because there is no greater act of humility and exaltation than in our Lord. Look what it says in Philippians chapter two. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Listen to what Paul is saying. Think about this the way Jesus did. And here's his position. He wasn't a CEO. He wasn't the richest guy in a church. He didn't have the house on a hill. He was with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Master of creation, the word that spoke the universe into existence. That's his position. And he said that wasn't a thing to be grasped. Who are you to grasp your position, cling to it? Instead, he humbles himself. And he comes in the form of a servant and he becomes obedient even to the point of death. There is no greater humility than the king of kings dying for the sinner. You say you follow him. Follow him in humility. And then look what Paul goes on to say in Philippians. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name. There is no greater name. In the history of the world, the name of Jesus, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the world, joy to the world because he came and he's coming again. And at that name, every knee shall bow. Those in heaven and on earth and those under the earth. Is this real to you? Everyone will bow at Jesus. Everyone heaven, earth under the humility of the cross, the, the power of the empty tomb, and the reality that's coming is that Jesus is exalted above it all. The headlines that we listen to and the, the, the power struggles that we're a part of and the, the governments that, that war and the Lord sits back and laughs because there's coming a day when every knee can't help but bend down. Do, do you understand the exaltation of Christ? And so what Paul's saying is, why are you afraid of humility? Why culturally are you a rich young ruler that walks away at the invitation of the gospel? Because you have great riches. Don't you understand that the greatest act of humility is going to turn in the greatest act of worship the world has ever seen? Glory in it. Your life has two directions at all times in Christ. It's going down and it's going up glory in whatever it is. Some of you are being called right now to glory in the act of humility. And, and I, I, again, I say it, it's easy to preach, but by the power of spirit, you must practice that in whatever the way the Lord, through the circumstances of the world and the trials of life and the temptations, great. He is teaching you humility. He's teaching you to let go of the position and the power and the identity that exists apart from him. Glory in it. It will be good. It will be painful, but it will be good when your pride is stripped away. It will be good when you have a clear picture of heaven because the stuff in the storage unit has been cleared out. And some of you are being called to be exalted. You came afar off, and you hear the invitation of the gospel. It's a free gift. Your life apart from God is going towards death. Sin will kill you. And the message this morning is glory in exaltation that the trial that brought you to church could be the trial that gets you into heaven. Because you hear the gospel with ears to hear and hearts to receive, and you have to glory in the reality that God is picking you up and now he's writing your name in the book of heaven and you glory and you worship in that. Whatever direction this morning, you are being called to glory. Glory.